You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. We've uh, reached number 103, I do believe, if you can believe that. Um, and I'm wishing you all the best. I have a couple of goals for the new year for myself, and one of which I want to throw out to you guys uh, who are listening right away. I want to kind of unchain myself from the algorithms of Twitter and Facebook uh, in order to keep up with what's interesting out there. So I'm going to go back to the future and uh, re-up an RSS reader, um, if you can if you remember what that is, uh, and subscribe to a bunch of uh, really interesting blogs and, and websites and that sort of thing. So I would love it if you give me some suggestions of things I, I should listen to or uh, read every day. And so even if it's your own blog, that would be great. Uh, so if you want to respond, we have an e- email address at sectarianreview at gmail.com. You, of course, go to the Facebook page and leave a suggestion there or always go to the website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Uh, give me some suggestions about what I should be reading for the next year. Um, and help me help free myself from uh, from the tyranny of Facebook. And so um, uh, that's one of my goals. One of my other goals uh, for this year for the show is to actually interview creators, people who do podcasts, do writing, do blogs, authors, and that sort of thing. Uh, and I have one uh, lined up for the very first show for this year. I'm going to be talking with Matthew Brake, who um, edits and uh, kind of is in charge of this uh, really cool uh, project called Pop Culture and Theology, which I recently discovered. And uh, so we'll be talking to him um, about what he's doing, and it's going to fit right in neatly. If you remember back a few episodes ago uh, when I interviewed Doug Cowan about his book about Stephen King and theology, um, a lot of the subject matter of that show was about my kind of personal boredom maybe or discomfort with academia and kind of the limitations of that and and what Matthew's doing here is uh, uh is along those lines it's something that's kind of taking what we do and breaking the chains off of it and taking it to sort of a more popular audience which really resonates with me so um Matthew Brake thank you so much for joining me today for the sectarian review podcast how you doing doing good happy new year happy new year to you too how was your holidays uh it was a it was they were fine. Uh, Christmas is always weird for me because I feel like Thanksgiving is much more of a sacred time because you're able to sort of be present and rest and be in one place. Christmas, I feel like me and everyone I know is trying to visit so many people at once that no one is really present, and so everyone's running around. So, uh, so yeah, Christmas is Christmas is weird. So it's it's fine, um, <laughs> and I enjoy the not working part of it. And if you go to a good Christmas Eve service. You know, as a Christian, it can be fine. And, you know, New Year's Eve, as long as your hangover isn't too bad on New Year's Day, it's fine. But uh, so, yeah, they, they've been fine. Um, but, you know, just fine. Fine. Like, it's, it's no Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I, that's a great idea. We should kind of, uh, you know, appreciate what is truly sort of uh, holy about Thanksgiving. Uh, the, the sort of the idea where you do sort of sit down in one place and it's a little less hassle for some, for a lot of people um, than Christmas is. And I'm right in the same boat. We, every other year, 
go down to Florida to see my wife's parents uh, and for, for Christmas. So we were gone basically the whole holiday up until right before New Year's Eve. And uh, and yeah, and it was uh, it was fine. <laughs> I would say the exact same thing. But there's also a bit of stress with that. that uh, sometimes I wish I could just stay home. But, uh, but, um, but I don't regret going down there. But yeah, there is something also lost. And it's just weird for me, not being a Southerner, to be on the beach on Christmas Day sweating and shorts right and so that's uh that's that's not my thing as a northerner uh i'm from cleveland ohio for those of you who don't know so that seems very alien to me um well matthew why don't you tell us a little about yourself first before we get into your project uh sure well uh so growing up uh i uh felt like i was supposed to go into ministry from a pretty young age um and so I, I did. And one of the things I wanted to make sure I did when I was uh, in my teens was I wanted to find specifically a three-year Bible college. And the reason I wanted a three-year Bible college was because Jesus only discipled his people for three years, and then they got to just do ministry. And that's all I wanted to do. And I was like, I'll never go into further schooling. I didn't have a very high value of a high value on education at the time. I was a man of ministry action specifically ministry action so uh and then partway through my time at bible college i uh decided to go uh to seminary after an existential crisis i did go to seminary i went to pat robertson seminary in virginia beach which was its own uh i struggled with that a little bit until i read a philip yancey book that helped me to be a little more gracious towards the thing problems i had with the christian right so i went there talk about your existential crisis right right right. (laughs) So I went there and uh, got out of seminary, did my first ministry gig, and that's when my whole idea of what ministry would look like in my life totally went to hell because it was um, a really terrible experience, another existential crisis. Um, and through that, I ended up uh, in a, I ended up uh, going down a path which brought me into academia. And I began to find uh, my voice and path as an academic um, through being a writing coach and advisor and adjunct. Uh, decided to go back to school for some more master's degrees because I uh, I had an advisor actually who told me he was like, "Look, if you want to get into a good PhD program at some point, you should really get a second master's at a state school or something." Okay. So uh, and so that brought me where I am today, which is at George Mason, where I'm pursuing. Uh, dual masters in philosophy and interdisciplinary studies and I've been procrastinating finishing my thesis for that because I'm doing all this cool publishing stuff which has <laughs> just been really fun so that's cool and pretty soon you have the whole set of, uh, of master degrees right you'll, you'll, uh, you'll be able to it's, it's, it's Pokemon it's Pokemon <laughs> man I gotta catch them all you gotta catch them all right um, I mean in history I choose you <laughs> That's cool. I had a friend in New York who uh, he did a dual master in uh, oh gosh, what was it? It was uh, theology or divinity, and the other one was in like oh gosh, he does like social work, social work and divinity, uh, and it was really cool. I think uh, to to take that kind of bifurcated role uh, uh, or wrote towards things. One of my kind of um, 
regrets about the PhD is that you it focuses you, I think, too much, more so than I'm comfortable being focused, right? And, and so I think um, the what you're doing allows you to kind of um, reach out into a number of different fields and uh, and kind of and not so much limit yourself. And I think that that's really great. So um, and also I got to go backwards a little bit to what you said at the beginning um, about the, did you find a three year Bible college? I'd never even heard of such a thing. Is there, do they exist? I did. In fact, I chose an unaccredited Bible college in upstate New York called Elam Bible Institute. Okay, I've heard of this. Okay. And uh, it's, it's near Rochester. And I found out that, I mean, a number of people in my life I didn't realize had gone there. And in the months leading up, like I remember being in Kohl's and some random woman at the cash register was like, oh yeah, I have a friend who went there. And I was like, it's a sign, um, which, you know, maybe, who knows, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, they have accreditation now. They do a two year associates and a, uh, an extra year internship if you want to do that. But, um, you know, it was the, actually the hardest part about going there was just, I wanted to be closer to home and, um, the sun never shines there. So you know, <laughs> those were the hardest parts about being there, but um, the people there were, you know, the, fairly conservative, but um, it was surprisingly apolitical for how conservative I know some of the people there were, um, which kind of fits with my Anabaptist leanings now. But uh, but they had a special arrangement with some different, mostly Pentecostal graduate schools. Regent was their big one at the time. And so I was able to jump from my three-year non-accredited diploma to the master's program in divinity and they use the like experience in life clause to like pull that off. So, so I did find it, and uh, I would say overall, like, uh, and even when I was there, I could say it was a pretty um, good experience of spiritual formation and all those things. So I, I can I can mostly you know sing its praises. That's awesome. That's really interesting. And another thing that you said that was um, that really resonated with me was about. Sort of in your earlier days, you said that you were more ministry minded and, and less academic minded. I the previous college that I used to work at um, was a evangelical school, and a lot of my kind of ministry majors, I used to I used to bang my head against the wall because they were uh, they had that sort of mindset is that the classroom stuff was sort of a distraction from the real work of ministry, and so I'm like you know, I think God pretty much does want you to do well in your classes too. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's great that you're staying up all night counseling all your friends in the dorm, but uh, at some point you got to do your homework too, right? And so, um, yeah, and so uh, it's interesting that uh, you you found your way out of that sort of uh, limitation, limited mindset there as well. So, um, Can I ask what the school was that you were at? Uh, it was Emanuel College in uh, in Georgia. There's uh, there's one in um, Massachusetts as well, but the one I was at was in Georgia. So, um, okay. yeah, and uh, and, you know, some people from the network are still working there. <laughs> and so uh, I have nothing bad to say about the school. I just remember that being sort of a, a tendency um, amongst the some of the uh, the Christian ministry majors there was that they, uh, they ended up not finishing degrees because they were so in pers- hot pursuit of God's will, sort of. And, and part of my task, I felt, was to tell them that, you know, God's will is also that <laughs> He did bring you to a school to do this, right? And so, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's so, it's, uh, I don't know. I just found that very, uh, I, I can relate to what you're talking about there. Um, and so l- let's talk a little about the project. I, I was just doing a, uh, a little bit of research trying to find outlets like yours, right? And, and I found I, some 
Google algorithm finally led me to your uh, uh, to pop culture and theology is the name of the blog. And if you're looking for it, um, that's that's what you'll Google and you'll find some kind of uh, vaguely coexist looking symbol in a comic bubble, right? a comic dialogue bubble. And, and so that's uh, that's kind of the symbol for it. And why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the project, because it's a blog and it's a book series. And uh, so let's hear a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so. Sorry about for your listeners. Sorry about the cough. That yeah. was hey, they listen to me all the time. So hey, I'm always there's no, there's nothing more jarring than when you're listening to a podcast and all of a sudden you're <laughs> I'm Mr. Verbal Tick. I, I'm the worst host in, in America. So go right ahead. Um, so I've followed for years actually another series. Uh, I'm, some of your listeners may know you may know the philosophy and pop culture series, mm-hmm. uh, which was started by William Irwin. Uh, he teaches actually at King's College in uh, Wilkes-Barre, PA. And so uh, he, that that series, both the open court version and the now Blackwell version that he does, I followed that series for years. I have a number of the books. Um, and so I've I probably, you know, for, for years, especially after I really got passionate about my faith, wanted to go into ministry, I kind of put aside any other hobbies because ministry and Jesus and everything became my hop, my hobby. Yeah. And it was towards the end of, um, it was actually during Bible college that like my interest specifically in comic books began to resurface and in other areas of pop culture as well. Um, and so, uh, I, I got into the pop culture series in part cause I, I enjoyed learning about ideas, but I also liked learning about certain plots of certain stories. And so that was always fun. Um, so followed that series for years and eventually, uh, back in like 2013, I, I was just thinking about Star Trek. Like I was, I was binging it and watching some of the old series. Like I had just finished DS nine, like the year before and went my, worked my way through there, which I think is a very underrated Star Trek series because I think from season two onward, it just gets better and better and better, even though some of the acting is terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> um, so and I, I had this idea for uh, for a chapter, and I was like, I wonder if they're doing another volume of Star Trek and philosophy. So I checked, and I had missed the deadline by a month because oh. <laughs> they had they were doing an Ultimate Star Trek and philosophy, and so it's actually out now. And I'm assuming it's a good. I never bought it because I feel like it just reminds me of my <laughs> missed opportunities. They just done a Star Wars one too, so I missed Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, so I began to think, uh, you know, I was like, well, how can I maybe still contribute this? And then I found out about the blog they have and philosophy.com. Um, and I began to, within the next year, contribute to that blog. I contrib- contributed chapters to volumes in both the Blackwell series and the Open Court series. And then I began to, you know, start to get ideas that were probably more religious and theological than philosophical. And I was like, well, is there some equivalent series for religion or theology. And I was looking around for one and I couldn't find one, uh, except for, you know, the gospel according to, but you know, those, the problem with the gospel according to series, like gospel according to superheroes by BJ or is pretty decent, but a lot of them are, some of them are single author. It was hard to find open calls for papers. The type of theology that's getting done is, uh, pretty conservative or orthodox and I'm decently orthodox myself, but, um, I just, I don't like pop culture analyses that are kind of just sort of 
pop culture analysis by analogy where it's like, well, you know, when Superman stretches his arm, it's Jesus, you know, <laughs> you know, yes, like, like that just doesn't interest me. Like I would rather hear an analysis of some heretical idea that I can understand better than some cheap analogy of an idea that I already agree with. Yeah, and yeah. so, Hey, look, this is like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, so I was looking for, uh, some, you know, ecumenical interreligious series that maybe wasn't afraid of being heretical and I couldn't find one. Um, and so I ended up, uh, so I asked, uh, Bill Irwin, I was like, Hey, do you know of a series? And he really, he recommended gospel according to, and a few others. Um, there is one from, I think Macmillan from a David Lewis, but you know, it's all in hardcover. And so it's a little cost prohibitive and, mm-hmm. uh, which in all fairness, my series is going to be in hardcover in its first run before it goes to paperback. So that's a problem. I know Doug Cowan was talking about some of these where it was like, yeah, these could be so much more accessible if you just made them trade paperback. So I'm going to try to have a conversation with my publisher about maybe making some of them paperback first so they can be accessible. But that's a whole side thing. Okay. So eventually uh, I began to think about starting my own blog from which I could then build an audience where I could pitch a series. Uh, and I had a, I have a really uh, good friend of mine who was like, dude, you just need to do it. Like just start, don't keep putting it off, just start it. So mm-hmm. I bought a couple of WordPress domains, um, asked a friend to design a logo for me. I had a friend who wanted to jump in as a co-founder with me. She's actually just stepping out now because she, uh, is fostering and doing all sorts of stuff and busy. So she, she can't continue doing it for me, but or with me or whatever. Um, so I started the blog in April of 2016. Oh uh, no, maybe 17. And then, uh, actually I had a really decent run where I had something new to post at least once a week, uh, which is still the case. Like I've been like the number of contributions have been fairly steady as, as I've gone along. So I started the blog and then, uh, a, a colleague of mine at Fortress Press, Silas Morgan posted a thing on Facebook and was like, Hey, if anyone has a book they want to pitch to Fortress, um, holler at me and we'll, we'll meet up at AAR. So I go to the American Academy of Religion, talk to Silas, and then he refers me to Lexington Books, which was basically where Fortress, Fortress is going popular. So it was outsourcing its more academic stuff to Fort, uh, Lexington. So I hooked up with, uh, my acquisitions editor at Lexington. Um, he loved the idea. And so, uh, within the next month I had a con, I had a proposal contract, the whole deal. So the series has been going strong basically since about January. And now I have 11 volumes currently, uh, under contract. Um, and then, uh, there are a few proposals in the tank that I'm waiting for approval on that are also going to be really cool. The two open ones, you know about the one horror we've talked about, theology and horror, and then a theology and Westworld volume that should be really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I had an idea for that horror one, and I just don't know that I'm going to have time to get it done before the deadline. But um, yeah, this is uh, really exciting to me, though. And, I, and and by the way, I'll put links in the show notes to this if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com um, and look at the show notes. There'll be links to the and philosophy blog that you're talking about, um, as well as your own uh, and whatever else comes up as we, we're talking here today. I'll try and keep track of and put links in the in the show notes there. But yeah, one thing that I want to kind of fixate on here, though, a little bit is the idea. That that this is um, theology kind of broadly construed, right? And, and yeah. so it isn't 
um, sectarian, if you will, necessarily. Um, and one thing that you um, state on the about page for your website is people from all backgrounds and traditions are welcome, conservative and progressive, believing and skeptical, uh, theoretician, theoretician and practitioner. Uh, and so I really think that that's uh, an interesting thing. Like, why are you going that route? Because uh, I just think there's uh, a lot of interesting stuff. For, like, I want the sage wisdom of the experienced practitioner. I also want the critical scholarship of the scholar, um, whether believing or a believing person or not. And actually, this is a blog I'm I'm working on now. I have a lot of half-written blogs for my own blog that I need to finish writing. But um, it's it's really nice getting as getting enough regular contributions. It's amazing how you can fall easily into the role of editor and not writer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I actually had a friend. Uh, I've had a few friends tell me uh, that by choosing to call it pop culture and theology or theology and pop culture that I end up ostracizing um, some people. And I had one person at AR basically say to she, I mean, this is partially direct quote. It's a little paraphrase. Uh, she was like, did you call it theology? Cause you wanted to piss us off. <laughs> <laughs> she said it kind of playfully, like we were having drinks or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, well, what's, a, what's offensive about that uh, from her perspective? Um, I don't know if it's that theology is construed as a specifically Abrahamic religious thing because, and it's true. Like if, if theology is God talk, not all religions have God in a traditional sense. Like this is one of those fun religious studies questions. I love starting off my class, asking my students what they think religion is. And they're like, it's belief in God. And I was like, uh, some forms of Buddhism have no God. What do you do about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so those are always fun or Shinto is just a form of Japanese nationalism. What are you going to do? Um, yeah. arguably like, and I'm, there are nuances to that. There are divine things there, but, um, so I, so I understand the issue. And so when I say theology, um, one, I chose theology at the time cause I was reading Karl Barth, um, who was very clear that theology shouldn't need to apologize for itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing but but so that was part of my reason, um, and in so doing, I want to, I don't want to apologize for thinking that there's a there, there, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, even if I'm just trying to get people to think about the there broadly and not necessarily from my own Christian Orthodox perspective. Like in a de-enchanted age, I want to re-enchant the world. Okay, and by calling it theology, I'm more so indicating that. Um, I'm putting the emphasis on theology and not religious studies because religious studies traditionally, if you look at people like Jay-Z Smith and others, it's about outsiders studying religion Yeah. Um, versus theology, which is about insiders talking about, about their religion. Um, and so there are, there are problems with some terms here that maybe are still a bit uh, Christocentric, Christian-centric, in terms of the term theology itself, or maybe Abrahamic centric. Um, but all I was trying to denote there was I'm interested in the insider's perspective that indicates that there is a there there that uh, that makes religion a live option to believe in, yeah. to actually believe in, to adhere to some metaphysical, ontological truth about the world, and not just um, not just critical apparatus of religious study um, and not just thinking of religion as a fun little discourse that 
shapes our view, but like we don't really believe it, but it's a fun discourse. Like I, I want to get past that. Like I want people to deal with uh, the real, I guess, is what I'm after here. Yeah, yeah, and that actually, um, so it sounds, one thing that came up when I was talking to Doug Cowan again about Stephen King and theology is the way he was using that term, the way he was reading Stephen King's work was King is interested in kind of unsettling questions that have for the dogmatic believer been overly settled, right? And so King's work is try as a way of continuing to ask the God questions um, or the ultimate questions, at least about the, the nature of the universe. Right. And, um, and so that's what he was sort of doing by theology. And I think that that's, um, coming from someone who's working for the Christian Humanist Radio Network, right? That's sort of right in line with the way I think that we kind of approach these questions is to ask questions about the things that most people just assume answers about. And and so even though it may be, as you say, perhaps um, Christocentric or whatever, um, it's still not, it's, it's not, uh, it's not uber dogmatic. Right. Uh, And so, right. Yeah. No, I think that that, that's really, really cool. Um, And so um, anything else about the sort of background or uh, nature of the blog or or book series? What are some ones that are coming out in the near future? You'd mentioned the horror one. Um, As this one is released, you have about a week, (laughs) I think, um, to uh, to get your proposals out for the uh, the horror, uh, horror and theology um, book. What are some other ones that people can look into? Uh, well, as far as in terms of live CFPs, I don't want to talk about any of the others that I know are, I guess I, I know James McGrath has talked about submitting some stuff for Progressive Rock and Doctor Who. Okay. Uh, and so he's talked on his podcast about that. So um, there is the potential for a Neil Gaiman volume soon, which I'm I'm kind of excited about. Um, and then, of course, the, the Westworld and... Uh, uh, horror ones. I mean, other ones that are in the tank that people can't contribute to anymore, but they can buy certainly when they come out. Maybe the first one should drop, I think, in the summer or fall, hopefully. But there's a volume. The first volume is probably going to be Prince or Theology in Prince. Nice. Um, and that's going to quickly be followed by ones on Star Trek, Star Wars, um, Game of Thrones, Black Panther, the Marvel Universe. Uh, there are a few single author volumes on country music, on um, secular pilgrimage, and this idea of places like Fenway and Disney World being a secular form of pilgrimage. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I'm hoping for a few on uh, Stanley Kubrick, um, uh, dystopian literature, or some potential volumes that are coming down that I ha- I'm talking to potential contributors now. Uh, I'd love to find, I'd love to get someone to do one on series. Uh, I'd love to have sort of a anthology sci-fi series by which I mean, you know, series like twilight zone, outer limits, black mirror, things like that. Yeah. I'd love to get one, uh, on spy thrillers like James Bond, born identity, um, mission impossible. Um, I'd also love broader, genre ones like fantasy sci-fi construed more broadly uh, I'm talking to someone right now who wants to do a Battlestar Galactica one so so there are definitely other volumes from other authors that I know are somewhere 
at various stages that they're either thinking about them, they're writing the CFP or the CFP has been submitted and we're just waiting for approval. Yeah. Okay. That's really great. So, um, uh, and by the way, before I ask my next question, um, I have to just, so I guess full disclosure, um, admit that you guys actually published something that I wrote recently, which I very, <laughs> I very much appreciate. Um, and, and that through that correspondence is how this idea for this show came up. But you published, I wrote something about Tom Waits and sort of the theology of Christmas. Uh, and, and you were very nice enough to, uh, to publish that for me. I appreciate that. Um, it got some decent views considering the, the volume of like the traffic, you know, I don't, I want more traffic to the site, but like it, that one actually did really well over the the slouch of Advent season. <laughs> That's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I, I enjoyed that. that. Actually, if I can give you a little background on where that came up, I was um, proctoring a final exam for my detective fiction class. And while they were taking the exam, I got this little glint of inspiration about writing that. And I, so I started writing it during that hour. And then the uh, and then I just continued it over the next couple of days. So um, that was sort of came out of the boredom of proctoring an exam, actually. And so I'm glad that I'm glad it found a home. Um, but so the the litany of things that you just uh, listed off are really fascinating and people who listen to this show regularly will I hope re- realize that this is right along the lines that the, that what the same thing that we're interested in in this show is looking at kind of everyday culture and hovering over it and, and taking some time to understand sort of that it is sort of it speaks to people for deep reasons, right? And let's hover over them for a while and explore reasons why some of these things, um, even to the level of theology and our belief in God, um, there's some reason that these things resonate with us. So what is for you the importance of doing, uh, I guess, theological work in a popular sphere? So these are not sort of academic presses per se, uh, or press books per se, but it's academic work for lay people if you will and, and so so what why is that important to you um well let me throw out a quick caveat here uh the lexington series is actually an academic series um i initially i was looking for i was looking to do something this is why i went to fortress first because i was hoping it would be able to walk that line of like being a really really hearty meaty popular series and instead it's more of a academic series that is trying to avoid jargon so it does appeal to a popular audience. And this is actually um, what I meant to say. I apologize yeah, yeah. if I misspoke. No, no, no. It, I, it I is an academic. <laughs> but it's 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 approaching things that are not sort of like, you know, the the canon of English literature, right? It's approaching right, right. popular culture, right? Uh, and and trying to sort of bring what we do as academics to a larger audience, right? And so that that's what I meant to say. I apologize yeah. for that. But, um, no, 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 but you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. You're fine. Um, well, when it comes to pop, you know, uh, I mean, really, for me, I think it's really well encapsulated by an article William Irwin wrote a number of years ago that he has on his site about how pop culture helps certain ideas go down with a spoon of sugar. Mm-hmm. But even beyond that, like there are fascinating stories and ideas within these pop culture pieces themselves. I mean, any Star Trek fan will tell you... Like a real Star Trek, not someone who just watches the new Chris Pine movies and is like, action, excitement, ACDC. <laughs> um, but someone who uh, is some, like any lover of Picard, like is excited now that Picard's getting a series on CBS All Access because like going back and rewatching certain Star Trek episodes where you just have Picard's steady, humanistic, like whenever it's like in Drumhead where you have this conspiracy woman 
going after Picard and saying, there's a huge conspiracy on this ship. And Picard just calmly, thoughtfully deconstructing what she's saying and at, appealing to the better angels of our nature. Yeah. <laughs> there's just something so beautiful about Picard and his thoughtfulness that we need. Um, so I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in pop culture that's worth looking at in and of itself. Um, that again, hopefully is able to re-enchant the world because by reading any form of fiction, you're able to like one of the, my favorite comic book artist in the world is Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. I love Grant Morrison. I love his use of metafiction, the self-conscious fiction. Like I was uh, teaching, a, I teach a, sometimes at Mason, a religion and literature course. And, uh, one of the things we read is Grant Morrison's animal man. Okay. And I had one girl in the class tell me like, when she and this was like this wasn't like she was probably one of my she's one of my best students in the class she uh a member of the secular student alliance on campus all this stuff and she was like i turned the page and when buddy baker looks out at the reader and is like i can see you (laughs) she was like i got chills and morrison the way he plays with that line between reality and fiction and blurs it um I just think it's very it's very useful for getting people to rethink the horizon of what reality is. Yeah, and I th- I just think there's something so beautiful about it that I think for me also being grounded uh, in a religious tradition, uh, especially one that's always advocating that people adopt a religious tradition, I want people to be thinking about again, religion as a live option. And I think stuff like that is just so helpful for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are critics of pop culture, you know, the famous, you know, culture industry essay by Adorno and Horkheimer and dialectic of enlightenment, which is a great book. And it is a great essay. I love when he's like, you know, watching Donald duck get beaten helps us to deal with our own beatings from our own employers, basically. Right. Um, And just lulls us. Um, into complacency with our own, you know, wage slavery or whatever. I mean, he goes into his whole his whole deal there, and uh, and I I don't disagree with him, um, but I'm not quite. I don't quite want to dismiss pop culture completely because I think there's really beautiful stuff to it, even though it comes from all these things come from like businesses, like you know, Warner Brothers, for instance. Like it is true, like it is a business playing around with these licensed characters and if justice league shows us anything it's that yes justice league is the perfect example of what adorno is talking about where yeah it it really sucks when business interest spew out these uh characters because yes it is obviously shallow and mindless and it's getting in the way of good creativity because it's it it's movie it's creativity by committee basically yeah Um, so totally by that but Catherine Tanner has this really great essay she's a I believe a Bart scholar um, about how the thing with popular culture though that keeps us from needing to totally disregard it is that pop culture she equates it to popular theologies pop culture takes on a life of its own unintended by the business interests that release it and can become something so much more that becomes liberative Mm -hmm. and causes us to rethink again the horizons of our reality yeah um 
Can I say that's my favorite TV show um, is Hannibal. Uh, I know I'm one of the fanables, right? And so um, that's uh, uh, to me the the joy of that show is that it felt like fan fiction that um, they took what was inherited from the sort of uh, Hannibal Lecter universe and reimagined it into something quite different than what was that what they inherited um and, and yet i know that it was also put forth by a, by a corporate entity it was nbc right but um but but it was also there was something about it that had that kind of dialectical nature if you will there's something that um is perpetuated through time and it's never completed right and, and I, I really enjoyed that about that show um and a couple other things you're talking earlier a little bit about uh, the grant morrison um breaking the fourth wall uh moment and, and how instructive that is i had a very similar experience this semester i, I taught my detective fiction class here at mount aloysius college where i work and um uh, and we read City of Glass by Paul Auster. And it's a very kind of postmodern detective story and in which um, the main character has all these various identities that he inhabits. And at one point, he knocks on Paul Auster's door. And then so the author of the book sort of enters into the book. And you, that line between creation and creator is sort of blurred. And I had such a theological uh, conversation about that moment and in a way that a more kind of I, it just isn't available um, in other ser- more serious kinds of literature. Not that city, not that Paul Auster is not considered literary, but um, because it's genre, um, people were sort of more into it, I guess. And so it, it opened up that opportunity to have these really profound kind of moments, right? And so this is yeah another reason I, I totally agree that there's something about popular culture that. Um, makes an opportunity to bridge that gap between the kind of cloistered institutions of both, you know, uh, institutional religion and academia uh, and breaking those cloisters open to allow some interaction <laughs> with the general public who's not, you know, privileged to live in our in our ivory towers. Right. And so, um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and I also want to I want to push back. I've defended Justice League on this show before and people always push back on me. I really do think that that movie has clear flaws and there was definitely the the backstory of the, the creation of that film those flaws come through clearly there's a, this commercial impetus butted up against Zack Snyder's you know big philosophical thing that he's doing um but i think in general the the dc film universe is unfairly trashed a little <laughs> i think clearly they're not as slickly produced as the marvel movies right but i think part of the reason that i just find them interesting is that i think that they are trying to do something inherently philosophical and even theological um particularly with something like man of steel right um and and so i think that um i'm willing to kind of give justice league a little bit of a pass even for, and despite of all its flaws i'm supposed to go see aquaman here in a few hours actually uh and so i haven't seen that one yet but um yeah yeah, I've actually retroactively become appreciative. I'm not necessarily a fan of the DC Cinematic Universe, but I, I appreciate them much more. I've even gone back and rewatched Batman versus Superman and uh, and, and and reevaluated it, on the, trying to approach it on its own terms. And so I just wanted to push back a little bit on Justice League. Go ahead. Yeah, no, Tell that, me how wrong that, I am. <laughs> no, no, that might have been me uh, intentionally setting this up because I uh, I listened to that episode. Oh. <laughs> and so, uh, no, I, I actually do agree with you. And my comment's more or less intended to point out how whatever grandiose plans Snyder had for Justice League were ruined by 
corp- corporate yeah, interest. Absolutely. Because um, I, I do agree. I think um, I, I still have problems with Man of Steel basically because Superman, like we should have seen him saving the lives of the people who were being, who were caught up in the fight. Yeah. Like the whole, like there should have been a little bit of Richard Donner channeled into, in fact, I read this really great article a couple of years ago that, you know, Snyder channels some of the grimmest parts of Miller's interpretation of even the Batman Superman dynamic when what he should have relied on was Mark Wade and Alex Ross's Kingdom Come dynamic, mm-hmm. which actually still shows Superman as a hopeful figure. Yeah. Even if he's struggling with hope versus the gritty nature of the world, but it's still it's still a much more hopeful Superman than the one we got. And I, I feel like, uh, in fact, I have an article on the blog about this, Man of Steel and a Theology of Hope. Um, I, I think Man of Steel I still find super problematic, even though there are moments about it that I think are beautiful, particularly the first trailer for it. I think is it feels like the movie that I wish Man of Steel had been. Yeah, yeah. Um, Batman vs. Superman, I agree with you that it is super underrated and there are some really cool things in there. I just think Snyder has a problem balancing his artistic vision with audience expectations for the flow of a movie. And so, but there are so many, I I love the flash coming back. I do love the nightmare scene. Um, And I think Lex Luthor's plan viewed in hindsight for how he turns them against each other. um, I I actually think it were, I don't mind Jesse Eisenberg. I don't mind, the conspiracy to turn them against each other. I don't mind all of that. I just felt like maybe Snyder there, there are things he probably should have cut and extended on and probably he should have played to audience expectations more. And I think in doing that, it might've made for, he could have done so like 90% of what he did, but there's just stuff that needed to be cut or trimmed or like, it was just too crowded. Yeah. And, and because of that, the theatrical release made less sense than it should have, yeah. particularly why people were turning against Superman. When you understand the CIA thing, and then you understand that Lex hired KG Beast and these other guys to like shoot these specialized bullets, and then he burned the bodies. Like When you understand all those dynamics, how Lex set up for people to kill people with the Bat brand, yeah. all those factors. Um, Batman killing a lot of people, I think, is a little bit like the car chase scene where he just blows the hell out of the guys. I I do think that's problematic. Like there are problematic aspects of this, but I don't hate Martha. I think because no one's no one has ever addressed. (laughs) No one has ever addressed the similarity in names between Superman's mom and Batman's mom. And I think he's the first one to do it. Yeah. And Batman's emotionally fragile enough where I think it works. Like people (laughs) hate it. I know Hishi. How it should have ended made fun of it. And it was like this villain shows up who basically looks like Adam Warlock and he's like, I am the mighty Martha. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I know it's I know it's subject to parody and I know people are gonna be like, Screw you, man, but I think it works. And so I, I, I think Batman versus Superman is uh, criminally underrated. Leaving out the Steppenwolf scene and the theatrical cut was a mistake. Yeah. Um, I love the whole like the very theological nature of the angels and demons painting and yeah. the idea of dark side. And let's be clear. Steppenwolf, I think work. I love the fourth world. I love Jack Kirby's fourth world. And so people hate on Steppenwolf, but I think as a reconnaissance 
type of first wave scout figure, Steppenwolf works as a villain. Yeah. Uh, if only to be the, okay, this guy was tough, but we, we beat him. Yeah. But then you have dark side come in and I am so sad. We'll never see Snyder's dark side. Cause I think it would at least look really cool and yeah. would be portrayed in oversized mythic proportions. Yeah. Cause I, lo- and apparently he was going to use final crisis, Grant Morrison as his inspiration. And I love that story, even though it's flawed. I love that story. Yeah. I, this is, I've expressed this on the show before. I'm really, I find these movies despite their flaws. And I totally agree with everything you've said. I was an initial hater of the Martha thing. Um, and I used to sort of scoff at that. And I, this last oh, a few, a couple months ago, I was deathly ill with some stomach bug and couldn't do anything, but sit in my bed. And I re I rewatched the, the extended version of Batman versus Superman. And I just kind of, I just, tried to approach it from its own terms. And I was just telling this to a friend of mine the other day that I feel like that movie is generally much more philosophically um, oriented than a Marvel movie is. And so because of that, you're going to have these big kind of almost archetypal moments like that, that don't make sense in our sort of actual reality. But if you just sort of approach it the way it's approaching it, that Martha thing does make a lot more sense now. And I'm, I'm I, you know, I, I kind of backtrack a little bit about my initial hatred of that. Um, and one thing that I've um, kind of, I, I'm regretful the way that these movies, they're trying to do something interesting, right? And I said this before about, I really, I really love the new Ridley Scott alien stuff that apparently they're not going to make any more of. And, and I think that's, endlessly fascinating despite all of its kind of technical flaws or narrative flaws let's call them right uh, and your point about Zack Snyder's biggest flaw is his inability to kind of match his vision with audience expectations is the best way I've ever heard that explained by the way um, that came from a friend of mine I think who uh, so I'm borrowing that from him I won't throw his name out there but it you know yeah, no that that was that that articulates it much more clearly than anything I've I've been able to before. But in the same thing, I think with what Ridley Scott was doing with those new Alien movies. Um, and so we're at a point though where because these filmmakers are trying to do things within this very popular genre that audiences don't like immediately, they just drop it immediately, right? And so I really wish that th- there would arise out of this Zack Snyder and whoever was doing that amazing Spider-Man series. Um, uh, uh, Mark Webb, I think his name was. Um, how could I forget that name? Um, and he, uh, I wish that they could then create like comics or books that continue what they had intended to do. Because I really wanted to see what they were doing with that amazing Spider-Man series that with uh, you know the the British guy, I forget his name now, uh, who played the Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield, yeah. Uh, I thought that that was a fascinating um, setup for uh, an interesting story, and I'd love to see where they were going to go with it. Right, and the same thing with the the Justice League movie. Like, I, I would like to see what Zack Snyder had in mind, even if it's not a movie. Like, at least tell me the story that you you had in mind. And so, I I. I I'm hopeful that something like that will arise um, out of the industry here. So, um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're this is a perfect fit for this show. <laughs> I hope the <laughs> listeners realize this, this in so many ways. So um, I want to like address one thing before we kind of close up. So for me, what you're doing and what you're contributing to is part of what I, I'm trying to do as well is there's a I feel somewhat detached from the professionalization of academia, right? Uh, and I feel like there's something in the way that 
I mean, it all go, it's all tied into sort of systems of promotion where you have to publish in particular journals or with particular presses in order to earn your academic bona fides. But what that has led to is this um, ultimate sort of cloistering of of intellectual work and uh, and, and engagement. And so, uh, to me, like I, I'm very interested in kind of busting out of those kind of constraints. I'm very lucky to work at a place that lets me do what I do, like with the podcast and, and the Tom Waits articles, and, and and they seem to appreciate what I do, right? And so, uh, but not everybody's that lucky. So what is it for you that um, that you see, how, how this works in relationship to academia and its expectations? Um, so, so I, you know, fortunately, through Twitter and other places, I've been able to connect with tons of people doing pop culture work. So I know that there are places that appreciate it. So that's that's helpful. I don't I don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, whenever I tell people at Mason what I do, it's always sort of like, yeah, I'm teaching a class on religion and comic books. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and you know, it's just, the, and I'm like. Your field is dying, you idiot. Like, <laughs> you need this. Yeah. Are, are you getting six people in your modernist poets, you know, class yeah, anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, not that I don't love well, modernist poetry, too. So, well, you know, and all of them are, are very competent. But, um, I mean, I, you know, Mason has some, you know, it's a small religious studies department, but there are some really good people there. And the philosophy department, um, it was a great place to learn philosophy and all that. But, um, just this it's it's not a department where there are a bunch of closet nerds who really want to write on pop culture it's not the type of thing um so in terms of how it relates to academia like i mean i think it's so i mean and again if you if you have if you are a hardcore adorno popular culture is terrible i don't get me wrong in popular culture there are certain it, it is true popular culture comes and goes like a wave on the seashore which all my Nietzsche fans should love because that's Nietzsche's thing. That's what we're supposed to be like. So why not make academia like that? I don't know. Um, it, it is true that, you know, like when's the last time you had a relevant conversation about lost? You know what I mean? Like as big as that phenomenon was, um, it's, it doesn't have staying power. Right. Even though it's cool to revisit and, re, you know, even when it was on, there were lost book clubs that would read all the books that showed up on the show. Um, it was filled with concepts. But one, you know, so I understand the the temporary nature of popular culture. Um, at the same time, there are some things that just transcend. Like like the bat will always sell, and the bat has a lot of really cool stuff in it. Yeah. Um, Superman is this archetypal, like you said, figure um, who's who transcends. Like th- there are parts of pop culture that trans. Uh, you know, the uh, Seinfeld will always be. You know, Seinfeld will be remembered more than Friends because Seinfeld rose above the the crop of what was there. Like, um, so I think I understand the the skepticism about pop culture and its lack of staying power. Um, but I also think pop culture, per Catherine Tanner, is like popular theologies. Like, it reveals something about what's happening in culture and in humanity and people's ideas about God and. Like there's a lot of interesting stuff there um, that I wish more academic departments would tap into and realize, you know, from the pragmatic economical standpoint, I think if you promote a bunch of courses that are like you promote a watchman and philosophy course on George Mason's campus, people are going to attend it. 
and you might actually pull in people from the gaming English uh, TV audio department that would never have taken a religion or philosophy class otherwise. Like, I think pragmatically, economically, it makes sense to have these types of courses because I think people would take them. Um, beyond that, I am interested in all of these topics, so I think they're worth diving into and exploring and yeah. on their own merits. Yeah, and, and just to, I mean, kind of take the other side um, a little bit is I get that there are better and worse ways of exploring popular culture, right? Uh, I've been to the, the PCAACA conference before, um, and I sat through so much dreck of people with super shallow readings of of popular culture that, uh, I mean, I remember one, it was basically like, pointing at pictures and saying, isn't that cool? I mean, that was that was the extent of the analysis, right? So I get that there's a, um, if that's how you're conceiving of popular culture studies, I get that that is sort of an academic waste of time, quote unquote, right? But I think what, with what you're doing, what I try to do um, with varying degrees of success, <laughs> I admit on my show, but what I try to do, and I think what you're definitely doing is that you are um, approaching these subjects from the wisdom of these inherited traditions, these intellectual traditions, right? And, and so, for example, let me just kind of, um, the, the most recent blog post I think up that you, as of the recording today is sort of your five top posts of the year or something. And I went back and read some of them. And the one that stood out to me was the one on um, Black Panther and liberation theology. Um, and I, uh, I can't remember who wrote it off the top of my head right now. It was Corey Patterson. Yeah. And, and so, um, and it was just fascinating. A really great exploration of James Cone and, uh, and a really great way to apply this kind of dense, complicated um, subject to something that people have an inherent interest in. And so I think that is, if you're thinking about the best and worst ways of doing popular culture studies, I think that's a really good example of the value of doing that. It's still academic. You're still learning as you're writing these uh, articles, right? And you're teaching people new concepts. Um, and these are complicated philosophical and theological concepts, but you're using um, something that is more accessible in order to explain these complicated features of, of these theoretical frameworks, right? Um, and at the same time, then, you're bringing out something that's already there in the popular culture. This isn't like just, you know, using popular culture uh, as, a, as a means to an end, but the as an end in and of itself, there is something super yeah. interesting there. And just appreciating that um, through this lens, I think is really valuable. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, and I want to be clear, like, because <clears throat> I made a comment about how, you know, we could fill our humanities enrollments with doing stuff like this. You know, I do love the humanities. I love the concepts of humanities. You know, I, I'm I'm an INTP on the Myers Briggs, so I love concepts. The more abstract, the better. Yeah. Um, the less close to reality, the better, I guess. <laughs> um, but you know, I love the humanities and I love popular culture, and so much of what I see in the humanities, I find these beautiful illustrations and explorations of in pop culture. And I just think, yes, I, I um, pop culture is an end up in and of itself. And it, uh, yeah, it, it contains these ideas that I find important in on their, on their own terms Yeah, in a medium that I think is very under, I mean, the superhero genre alone, super underappreciated for what it's able to do in in the hands of certain writers. Again, Morrison, when you read his like Animal Man, Seven Soldiers of 
his seven soldiers of victory or seven soldiers, whatever it is. Um, there's just so much good stuff there. So, um, so yeah, I, I want to pop culture for me. Isn't just a means to an end. I think it can be a means to an end while also having some really important stuff that in itself that causes us to rethink our reality. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's dialectical. Like I don't know where the, my love of the humanities themselves uh, end and where the love of pop culture begins because I feel like they're so interwoven that I don't really, I, I don't want to reduce the analysis to one or the other because I, I love both. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and that's why I, I think that what you're doing um, with the project here with pop culture and theology again is uh, is so important because I think there are a lot of people who are kind of recognizing that there are limitations that these historical institutional structures have put on the study of the humanities. There are um, ways in which those business practices, to put it in a, a vulgar way, have, have kind of limited the the appeal of what we do in the humanities right and so um and, and what you're trying to do and, and and there's a community of people out there like this um is open up those walls again right and not necessarily ditch the past right <laughs> none of the articles that you're, you're talking about are ditching the past and saying that old old things are, are irrelevant now let's just talk about the new things it's using the wisdom of the past to appreciate what is new right uh, and and therefore I mean and, and try to have interesting conversations with people who might not have been interested in having a conversation with you before uh, and, and so this to me is what I really love about pop culture myself um, and Maybe I get into it too much to the neglect of something else. I still feel like I do a lot of serious reading as well. But uh, but for me, it's much more gratifying to have a conversation with a, quote, regular person <laughs> than another academic on, on, with these jargon-filled terms at the MLA conference, right? And so, uh, yeah, so... Um, um, so once again, why don't you tell us where we can find you uh, and, and follow you, what you're doing, follow the work, and, and, uh, and then we'll kind of move on from there. Yeah, uh, you can find uh, the website. Uh, if you want a really short uh, URL, you can go to www.antheology.com mm -hmm. um, or www.popularcultureandtheology.com. Uh, if you go there, um, I'm always looking for contributors to the blog site. And so um, even if uh, you know you don't meet certain the academic qualifications for the book series, which for the most part is looking at a 70% PhD uh, number in terms of the number of PhDs. Um, you can always submit to the blog site. would love to have you. Uh, and then, of course, you can find information about the book series there as well, respond to any of the calls for papers that are there. Feel free to, if you have a PhD or if you have, have a master's but you have a friend who's a PhD who would love to help you, Feel free to submit a uh, a volume proposal, just a one page proposal, saying what you're going to study, why it's important, who you are, <laughs> potential <laughs> contributors, um, and so yeah, no, I, you can find us there. I'm always looking for people to get involved. 
Matthew Brake, thank you so much, um, first of all, for what you do, uh, but also for taking the time to come on the show and talk about it uh, with us. I, I really do appreciate it. It's been a, a great discovery for me. There are other links that you've, uh, in reading your blog, that you've introduced me to. Uh, there's one, what was it, Sacred and Sequential, or Sequential and Sacred, I forget. Uh, yeah. it, it's about comics and theology, and so there's there's a whole network of things I think you're going to discover and, uh, and, and really appreciate. Um, and let me just give you an open invitation to anytime you want to come on the show to talk about anything, uh, just give me a ring and, and you're more than welcome. This was a lot of fun to talk with you. Um, and those of you who are listening, if you have anything uh, that you'd like to uh, say back to us, uh, you know where to find us. I made the announcements at the beginning of where to find us. I won't do that again. Um, for Matthew Brake, my name is Danny Anderson. And uh, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. And I wish you a great new year.